Hey, Will. It's Matt. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? I can't believe I just did that like it was a telephone call instead of a podcast. That's okay. Will, it's Matt. How are you? You know, we're, we're, we're trying to learn, so. Trying to learn. I think that means we must be in search of truth in learning. Great idea. Uh, yes. So, anyway, welcome to episode number four of Truth and Learning. I can't wait till we get high enough in our podcast count where we lose count and we can't even say what episode number it is. Just yeah. be this week's episode. So, anyway, as usual, how are you? I am pretty good. Good. What's new? Uh, well, okay. I'm going to admit this. We, in my neighborhood here, we have rats. <laughs> People rats or the rodent kind? The rodent kind. In oh, fact, well, that's, that's less interesting. Uh, a couple of days ago, our neighbor next to us uh, got in touch with us and said, Will, Dorothy, there's a rat on your roof. He <laughs> climbed up the tree and now he's sitting on your roof. <laughs> So, you know, the good news is, Matt, that we're learning a lot about rats. You know, it's part mm -hmm. of our natural environment. And uh, in Somerville, Massachusetts, where I live, there is a person who has the title of the rat czar. There's a rat czar. So it's a dog catcher, a rat czar. She is uh, experienced and does, has done research on rats in, in urban environments. And I met her this morning and it was great. And we learned all about rats. And basically we learned that we are so screwed. We can yeah. kill them, but they're just going to come back because there's food sources all over the place. We got three mulberry trees within 100 feet of the house. Okay. Can, uh, this is uh, a question totally based in ignorance all right total ignorance what is the difference between a rat and a hamster from a cultural standpoint i mean people love hamsters but why do we hate rats well hamsters we like but hamsters are usually in cages yeah but i mean no one has pet rats in a cage well they they could there are white rats you know those lab rats yeah but my point is why are rats considered vile and disgusting and terrifying i don't know maybe like the bubonic plague and that movie it wasn't the rats it was the fleas oh there was a movie about rats when i was growing up i don't know oh well that movie was way before my time i know i shouldn't do that every episode comment on will's age anyway anyway well you know you look good though yeah, you know, for your age. Yeah, for 157. You're 157? You don't look a day over 140. Well, it's in, yeah. it's in rat years. I know. Oh, see? But I, and if, anyway, if any of our listeners can explain the fundamental biological difference between a rat and a hamster, I'd love to know. So, And I'm too lazy to look it up. So, Anyway, for today's episode, we have three topics that are hopefully not going to be rat-infested themselves. So our first topic is a discussion around how to evaluate a specific model or a tool or a resource. Topic two is what is an objective uh, and how do we consider a learning objective? And then more, uh, well, considering it from a bigger picture, what is the actual goal of training and of itself, right? So what are specific learning objectives? What does that mean? 
and going bigger, what is the goal of training in of itself? And then finally, we thought we'd have a conversation about what makes a trainer great. What are the features, the behaviors, the traits of a great trainer? And of course, we'll close with a special guest. My daughter, Leah, is going to join us for our best and worst of the week. She has now, some... Matt, we got to have her in for the third segment, too, if she's willing. You think? What makes, what makes a trainer or a teacher great? I think that's a great idea. I'll yeah. pull her in. I'll pull her in. The good news is, you know, her office is right next to mine. So I think I can make that happen. So good. Excellent idea. All right. Shall we move right into our first topic? Let's do that. All right. I have to admit, you are one of the gurus I go to that I turn to when I'm trying to evaluate whether a specific model or resource is useful. Um, and so as my subject matter expert, let me turn it over to you. How do I know if the tool I'm using or the resource I'm, I want to use is effective or uh, valid? I have a question for you. I mean, what, why is this a question? I mean, a tips for evaluating a model tool and a resource. Why can't we just ask, does it work? What's wrong with that? Well, because whether something works can be based completely on uh, a piece of subjective experience, which is one data point. And that doesn't mean that it works overall and that it wasn't some other factor that caused the effectiveness. So we may interpret something as working when it really wasn't that tool, that it was something else masked as the tool we thought was working. Ah. And therefore, we can spend a lot of money and a lot of time investing in something that actually doesn't work. So, okay. So I have a serious answer to your question. Good. It's uh, how about to evaluate. Time. What? It's about time. Someone <laughs> was serious here. Yeah. How to evaluate a model tool and resource. Well, I think first we have to ask, uh, what would I like this model tool or resource to be able to do for me? You just don't ask, is this, hammer any good, you ask, well, does it hammer in my nails properly? Or I guess the hammer is not a good example because it's pretty simple. But, you know, what do I want my car for? Well, I, actually, I think that's a really good example because I think too often we get enamored with the sexiness or entertainment value of the tool or the resource. And we forget why we're trying to use it, which ties into our second segment around objectives. Right, so I, I think there, that's a, it's a great example because it simplifies the question of why do we want to use this in the first place? What's it going to do for us? Yeah, and I think, and here's a really important point, I think, you can tell me if you think I'm crazy, but I think when I we ask the question of, you know, what's this tool going to enable me to do, we should first answer that question with high aspirations. Right? Because sometimes we have low aspirations. We've been in the field a while and we just don't think anything's going to get any better. And we said, okay, I just, you know, is this going to allow me to crank out a course? Well, that's not really what we'd hope for. We really want to crank out a learning experience that, you know, helps people learn and remember and inspires them and moves them to great performance and, in, you know, enjoyment, et cetera. Right? So we ought to think beyond uh, just sort of baseline. 
So when we ask that question, what do we want our uh, tools to be able to do? You think there ought to be a difference between what we want from models and tools and resources? I think that's a great point, Will. And I, I took a course on Coursera uh, from a professor named Scott Page at the University of Michigan on specifically how to think about models. And one of the things he said was models provide us with a, a structure for how to think about something. But one of the challenges with models is by themselves, they don't work universally. But often you need to put several models together in order to get a complete picture of something. And you have to be careful that the models don't conflict with each other. But he said that models are a way for us to put structure around things and for us to use those models uh, as a platform for how to think about complex subjects. And so I, I think you're right. I think we need to think about models in a unique way, separate from tools and resources, which have different purposes. Let me use the example of LTEM, the Learning Transfer Evaluation Model. <laughs> I created it uh, because when I looked at the dominant model of evaluation in the field, it was not doing everything I wanted it to do. I wanted an evaluation model that would send a clear message when some types of evaluation were being done, that those types of evaluation were unacceptable. They were not good enough. For example, measuring butts and seats. An evaluation model ought to send the message. It ought to prompt us like the behavioral economic notion of nudging. It ought to send a message that uh, this is unacceptable. You can't just measure butts and seats. You can't measure completions. You can't measure attendance. That's not good enough. I also wanted a model to, an, an evaluation model that would differentiate between low level types of learning measurement and high level. So the difference between regurgitating trivial facts and uh, be able to make complex decisions or take, uh, complicated actions. Those are different levels of learning. We can measure at different levels and an evaluation model ought to have those. So to me, a model is only as useful as the sort of messages or nudges or prompts that it gives out. And you can never measure, and, and this, is, this is my thinking, you can never measure a model's usefulness by itself. You almost have to always compare it to the other options that are out there because no model is perfect. So you want to choose the model that works for your purpose and is better than the other models that are available. Does, am I making any sense? Yeah, yeah. So going into uh, taking a step back in terms of evaluating a model, Sounds like step one is to make sure you have clarity around what it is you want the model uh, to explain or uh, to, to provide that structure for. Yes. Good. I like that. Good. So, but let me ask you a question. Okay, wait, wait. You, 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 if you're going to have these brilliant, uh, you know, capturing curations here, you need to, you said number one is, well, what's number two? Well, I haven't heard you say number two yet. You did. You did. What? So the first thing, and I'm just paraphrasing you now, the first thing we want a model to do is to be able to help us do the task we want it to do. 
Okay. Oh, right. But and that second thing requires that, you to know what that is. Yes, of course. Right. Okay. So you have to first identify it. Can you explain the difference between a model and a process? I think too often people confuse models and processes. For example, the five steps of delivering feedback, that's a process versus a model, which is an explanation of what feedback is, hmm. right? So there's a difference, a distinction between a model and a process. Well, wait a minute, then what's an Addy? Addy, is that a model or a process or both? I think it could be both. I think it's both. I mean, if I'm going to go through it sequentially, it's a process. If I'm trying to understand the five components of what goes into instructional design and training, then it's a, a model, right? Yeah. See, I think one of the big things we have to think about is when we have these models in front of us is, are they helping us have the right conception of our reality? Right? Right. But I, 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 oh, the reason I'm pushing on some of these definitions is because you were, you're saying that you want to distinguish between a model and a tool and a resource. And so we're spending a lot of time on what is a model. Um, but I also want to make sure people are clear what we're talking about when we say model. Because it really sounds like a muddle, you know? <laughs> yeah, so we don't want to muddle through this. <laughs> so, okay, let's talk about tools, because I think tools actually right? can send conceptions of things too. One of the things that you and I advocate, uh, I think we did it in the last segment or the last episode, uh, was to do A-B testing. Yep. Okay. Do any of our e-learning authoring tools, do any of them nudge people nudge e-learning developers to do A-B testing? Not the ones I've seen, no. But, but I've seen e-learning methodologies around e-learning instructional design, which interestingly enough looks very similar to traditional live instructional design, but that's a different issue for another podcast. But I've seen methodologies force that, but I find that those methodologies are less popular. Well, they're less, they're less practical. We know that people are pushed in certain directions by the cues in their environment. And our tools are the things that we use to do things, but also the things that we use to think about things. And if our tools aren't nudging us in the right direction, then they're not as good as they could be. I don't think, from what I've seen and from what I've heard and talking with people who are developers, I don't think our tools do these things. We're just, they're just, we're just cranking stuff through. We're not, they're not helping us conceptualize. You know, we talk about, we want our tools to be intuitive, right? We want our software to be intuitive so we don't have to have training. So we don't have to have a big manual, but what's, what that means is the tool, the cues, the stimuli from the tool tells us how to use it. Well, uh, somebody ought to figure out, how to create an e-learning authoring tool that sends some better messages. Well, I think this is where the design of the tool comes into play too, right? So PowerPoint is certainly a tool, and yet it doesn't, if you use PowerPoint as an instructional design platform, which don't do, but there are people out there who are sadly using PowerPoint as the main way to do learning design, right? That's a tool that's not pushing people in any direction, yet it's certainly a tool. Oh, no, no, you are wrong about that. 
Correct me. I, I am right. I'm right now creating a course on it's called presentation science. Mm -hmm. And I've been thinking a lot about PowerPoint. Okay. And it can be used for good. But it has some uh, some stimuli as part of its toolkit that sends people in the wrong directions. All the templates um, behind PowerPoint. If you go to the master yeah. uh, you know, slide that you can see it has a title on the slides, it has content. Those push you in the wrong direction. The themes that they have uh, have these ridiculous decorations all over the slides. These are bad. I would recommend to anybody to start with a blank slide. Well, I'm not, I'm not saying PowerPoint's a bad tool. I love PowerPoint. I love PowerPoint, PowerPoint has a purpose. And the purpose is not as an instructional design tool. It's, it's a delivery mechanism, right? Right. But even for that delivery mechanism, it has some cues. It, it has some nudges that I do not think are helpful. Agreed. I, I, but uh, I, I'm agreeing with you. Uh, I just am making the point that PowerPoint has a purpose. And if you use it for the wrong purpose, then you, 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 you're making a huge error, right? And if you don't go use the uh, application the way it was either intended for or validated to use for, then even the best of tools are going to fail you. That's true. That's true. Right. And so embedded in the word tool, would you say that includes processes, um, software like PowerPoint and Excel? Sure. Or what, are, what are some other examples of tools? Uh, pencils, phones. I'm just looking at my desk here. There's a knife I got. Uh, there's a stapler. There's a okay. grass cleaner. Yeah. Let's expand that directionally into more L and D terms. <laughs> oh, 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 in our field, yeah. Well, we got LMSs. We have, uh, you know, all the e-learning authoring tools. You know, we do have PowerPoint. We have SharePoint. We have, uh, we have trainers. We have classrooms. We have tables. We flip charts there's all kind of things well and let, let's connect back to some of our previous episodes where we were talking about uh models like disc or mbti i would distinguish between the concept versus the assessment and by the way i still hate those tools so i'm not referencing them for uh i uh, thought we advocate. said i thought we said we would never let them cross our lips again well, we're talking about truth and learning. So a lot of our folks are probably still using them and it's a good thing to distinguish between the concept and the assessment, right? The assessment is the tool. The concept is the model. Yeah. We've managed two tips. One is know what you want the tool, resource, or model to do. And two, have uh, uh, an objective for how you're going to apply it. Oh, and three, make sure you pick the one, make sure you look at other models and pick the one that's working best. And number four, you should make sure that whatever you're using is not just cool, but has some either research behind it or some best practice usage data. 
In other words, it's worked really well in other places. Uh, maybe you can talk to people who aren't trying to sell it to you to see if it's worked for them. Well, you know, like you know, I guess number five is that, hey, maybe we ought to A-B test these. We'll use two models and see which one creates the best outcomes. Well, we can't do A-B testing in our business. Otherwise, we won't have consistency. I don't know why consistency matters as much as people think it does. Consistency is such a red herring, I think. I mean, I've seen this. There's a number of different aspects of this in our field, right? The course right. has to be consistent. All I say, all of our e-learnings have to look alike. I mean, why? <laughs> do, our, do all our television shows look alike? No, they go out of their way to create variation because they know that variation keeps people's interest. <laughs> that is such a great, basic, simple example that blows the whole notion of consistency out of the water. That's great. I've also seen this, obviously, in the evaluation space. Well, we have to ask the same question in every course that we deliver. Why? Well, we want to compare one course to another. Oh, so you're going to compare a course on how to use Microsoft Excel with a course on how not to do sexual harassment? You're going to compare those two things? Both yes. make you want to shoot yourself. <laughs> Hopefully <No>. not. <laughs> uh, here, here's the bottom line. I think any model, tool, or resource you use should be used to solve a problem. Right? There's, there's a reason you need to have or uh, and use this. So uh, if you don't have a problem identified, then why are you picking a model or tool or resource to insert into your culture, into your organization? Well, let's not be so negative, Matt. Ma a problem slash opportunity. Opportunities are simply problems with a positive attitude. Ooh, write that down. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was Mark Twain, actually. Or I'm bastardizing. I'm pretty just sure the idea up. came from Mark Twain. You're just making shit up again. Come on. No, I'm literate. <laughs> You're literally... Uh, I'm pretty sure I came from Mark Twain in some variation. All right. Yeah. Listen, wow. I just want to... Just you, making shit up. Wow. You know... Well, I'm hoping you will read a book for once that isn't statistics-oriented. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, 27.4%. Okay. And on that note, let's move into segment two. What is an actual objective? What is the goal of training? Okay. All right. So the goal of training, you ask 100 learning professionals. Yeah. 90% would say to get business results. The next 10% would say to get organizational results because they work for nonprofit, right? It's all about those results. Well, is that leaving anything out, do you think? I'm going to say no. I'm going to say nothing is left out of that. That the, the objective of training is to solve an organizational or business problem slash opportunity. That is learning-oriented. I'm glad you got that opportunity back in there. Okay, but let me ask you this. Who is the training for? Uh, you, create it's, a, you create a training. It's a great new thing you've created, and you're going to deliver this to uh, your learners. Who is that training for? We have 
two audiences, potentially three. Audience number one are the specific people in the room, virtual or otherwise, right? So the audience are the, uh, there are one customer of this conversation, but the stakeholders, the executive team, the board, the CFO, uh, the person who's signing off on uh, the training and paying me or you, they're certainly a voice that has to be served as well. Uh, it's usually their problem that requires some form of performance improvement that the training is, is theoretically going to help solve. And then lastly, depending on what type of organization you are, the end users, the customers, uh, the clients of the organization. Right? But that would depend on what type of organization you are. Okay, so if the goal of training is to create an outcome for the business slash organization, mm -hmm. that's your goal. But what about your learners? Don't you have any goals for them? Well, yes, I named them as my first uh, audience, right? The people in the room, right? The learners. Right. So I certainly, but my goals for them may even be different. My goals for them may be different than the goals I have for the stakeholders. So the goal of training is for, is what? I think there are multiple goals. Oh, okay. <laughs> hey, this is like Socratic dialogue. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I, I do feel like putting a knife in my head. <laughs> so... Well, yeah, there are multiple types. There are multiple goals because you have to d distinguish between wh whom you're serving in a given moment. Yeah, I think it's very important. I, yeah, I think this has been lost. I think, you know, there was a, in the 1990s or 1980s, there was this push in the business world that we are serving uh, the shareholders, right? We're supposed to make money for the shareholders. And then other people said, well, wait a minute, is that, all we're doing with the business is that all we need to serve don't we have to serve the employees and the communities etc 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 well i think it's the same thing in the learning and development field you know we tend to go to the easy answers if somebody says oh it's all about business results we go oh, yeah of course because they're paying the they're paying our salaries we should but that's too simple the world's more complex the more the world is more morally ethically complex and uh, we have to bring in other things as well, particularly the learners. Uh, you know, you look at, we could go back to models. We talked about that in the first part of this show. Do our models have the learners as part of that, as part of the, set, the objective setting? Do we ever think, well, what, what should we be providing to our learners? What will they get out of it? What will they, and what will be their benefit to them for their career, for their, enjoyment, their inspiration, et cetera, so. Well, uh, so uh, I slightly disagree. So I, I do agree that we need learners in the room to see relevance in what they're doing, connect what they're doing to the work they perform, and, um, and leave the workshops better adapted, better equipped to manage whatever performance they have on the job so their their job is to learn right okay but let, let's say that let's say that you could teach them two things 
Mm-hmm. Right? You, you know, you do, you're going to do a needs analysis and you could teach them a very uh, proprietary tool mm-hmm. use in the business and you could teach them a more general purpose tool that if they learned that, they would increase their ability to earn a better income somewhere else. Both tools would create an equal advantage to the organization. One's general purpose, one's specific specific and proprietary do you do you, do you do you go with the general one because it will be more likely to help the learners or do you not do that what do you so here's the former uh manager in me uh what's the job market like is it easy for me to replace that person are there plenty of people i can backfill that role and function with let's say let's say the job market is hot people are you know, then I absolutely give up the non-proprietary, more personalized functional tool that's generic, but will serve the organization. Okay. But contextually, if the job market sucks and there's no way in hell I'm going to be able to backfill and they're, they're able to hop and leave and I'm dead if, if I can't backfill that, then no, give them the proprietary system. Really? Yep. Oh my God. I'm I'm partnering with an evil man. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to there are different responsibilities. If I'm an independent learner and you ask me that question, I want I of course want the one that's more transferable. If you're asking me as an executive in the, the organization and and it doesn't hurt me if they leave, then of course I want them to have the transferable opportunity. But if it's going to hurt us, if this person leaves and it makes them it easier for them to, to leave me in a lurch, and then I got to do the training all over again with a new person, boy, that's really expensive. You know, these, these ethical questions are difficult. Uh, and we could say there's no right answer. I think I would tend to go in the opposite direction. Here's a question for you. Yeah. We're talking about, you know, the goal of training. Uh, and talking about ethics, and I'm going to swerve it a little bit, but okay. So, uh, you know, the data is pretty clear that when you have uh, unions, mm-hmm. that everybody does better. All the workers do better in not only in the in the organization that has unions, but in the next door ones because the raise the wages tend to be raised. Mm-hmm. So, if you are working for an organization and we're coming back to this question, goal of training. You're working for this organization and they tell you, comes down from above, listen, we need a uh, anti-union course for our managers. Mm -hmm. How do you think about that? Well, I'm going to take a step back and say, how come? I'm going to ask them the question, why? And my general feeling is I'm a union man. Actually, I'm a worker man. I prefer to side with workers over management any day. Okay. But I think you have to facilitate the conversation and try and understand what the hell their reasoning is. Well, well listen. Why would, why would it even be a training issue to begin with, right? Oh, well, that's true. Let's forget <laughs> that little <laughs> nuance. Thank well, God. You are, you're, not, you, you're not big enough in this organization. You're not at a high enough level to really engage these senior people. They... They're not going to take your stupid questions and answer them. They're going to like, just give me a damn course. 
Well, am I, am I working internally? I'm not what's, even. What's a, the goal? I'm not an external consultant, right? What I'm an internal goal? guy. You're, yeah, you're, you're, ah, uh, yeah, so that's could make a difference. Right, because it's all about the politics then. <laughs> okay, let's say you're an internal. See, your ethical questions uh, require context. I want you all, all you podcasters, uh, all you podcast listeners to truth and learning that Matt and I can actually see each other when we talk. We're not co-located, but through and the boy, does Will have a face for radio? Oh no, you did it again. <laughs> so I just want you to know that Matt's face is all pink now. He's glowing. Now, did you want to go back to what a learning objective is? I, I do, but I I, I, I want to just finish one thing, Will. I, I want to ask you a question now. Is there a difference between education that we provide our children? in schools and, and our adults in higher ed and what we deliver in training in the workplace. What's the difference between education and training? You know, my first answer was that the, the chairs are a lot smaller in <laughs> education. <laughs> and this is why Will and I have time to do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, well, you know, I, this, this question, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if I have a good answer for it. So it's, I guess I, it annoys me. Um, you know, the, the, the standard answer is in education, we're speaking to the whole person and we're trying to get them to understand culture and things that are bigger. But at the same time, we also want them to know how to do the multiplication table and be able to sit down and get along and all these things uh, in training. We have a specific task we want them to be able to do, but I, I don't. I don't know. That doesn't always work, you know. Sometimes, like I used to be a leadership trainer, and it was very few. What should you actually do? Is more like how should you think about this? How should you approach these kind of situations? Now that you know that you're in charge of other people. How should you perform that? You know, how should you think about that kind of thing? So I'm not sure there's an easy distinction. Well, I, I think for me, it's almost, it almost goes back to the difference between a liberal arts education and uh, a more targeted STEM education, right? Um, in a liberal arts education, we're teaching people how to read and write and think generally about the world around them. Um, we're teaching people how to leverage their knowledge uh, as they learn of history into uh, thinking about the present. We're teaching people how to think more critically. We're teaching people how to work through problems at a general level, where in training, we are theoretically, if I'm doing my job right, I feel, as a training consultant, a learning and development architect, I feel that it's my job to get clarity on a specific outcome that may or may not be transferable, but is connected to the business, is connected to ensuring that the participants learn something that they're going to actively do differently as a result of the program. That, to well, me, is very different than, than well, educating. Okay. So, you know, one of the things I've been doing the last, uh, 21 years, by the way, LinkedIn tells me I've had my 21st anniversary at work learning research today. and People are saying great things. Okay. So uh, one of the things that I've done over these 21 years is I've taught about learning and learning design. 
Yeah. But it's my belief that I should not, when I do that, I should not just teach recipes. I should mm-hmm. not just teach, do this, do this. Right. That I should give people some fundamental understandings so that they can then think on their own. Mm-hmm. Well, am I educating? Am I training? I mean, I'll give you an example. One of the things that people ought to know in our industry is that we should not just help people learn, but we should also help them to remember. That is fundamental to what we do, and yet a lot of people don't know that. They weren't taught it. But if you understand that, if you have that conception, if you take that to heart, if you believe it, then all of a sudden, everything you do as a learning architect changes. You begin to think, oh my gosh, I can't just make sure that they got it. I have to make sure that they're able to remember. I maybe need to use spaced repetitions. I may need to use more realistic practice, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you're raising, you're raising a, not just an interesting point, but a really, uh, you're making it more complicated in a good way, in a good way. And I'm thinking back to LTEM because beyond memory, now I have to make decisions, right? And once we're starting to teach people how to make decisions about what they've learned, well, are we now back to transferable knowledge and, and yeah, ways of thinking? That's a great example. So that's right? sort of, that undergirds that notion that we can't just have people give people knowledge. We have to help them be able to make decisions. That's All right. Fundamental, I, yeah. I am totally changing my whole stance now on educating versus training. That, yeah, but you're was, not going to remember this by our next, next episode. That's because I'm old. So. That's because I didn't give you enough retrieval practice. <laughs> but thankfully, it's recorded, and I can listen to us over and over and over again. You know what? I'm going to suggest that we talk about learning objectives at another time. Shall I go get our uh, special guest? We, uh, should, we should get the guest of honor, yes. We were only going to have her join us for our, our best and worst, but Will had a wonderful idea to include Leah, my daughter, uh, in our third segment. So uh, I'm going to pause right now and go get her. So, Will, I'd like to introduce you to my daughter, Leah. This is Leah Richter. Hi. Will Talheimer. Hi, Leah. So, Leah has wonderfully traveled the world with me, actually, and her mother as well. And she has run activities. She's delivered segments of training and has received five out of five on all the smiley sheets. She's been magnificent. Hey, Leah, I have a question for you. Yes. Uh, did your dad pay you for this? No, but okay. he we feeds got... me, so well, I think it a... evens out. Yeah, okay. He eats a lot, so. Right. I just want to make sure you're well compensated. Anyway, uh, we were thinking that because Leah is a professional trainer and, uh, and a s- professional student, that it might be cool if she joins us for the segment on what makes a trainer great. And we could extrapolate that to what makes a teacher great as well. So Leah just got back from uh, 10 days, nine days. Yeah. Nine days at University of California, Berkeley uh, for a special leadership program. I think so. this is so awesome. All right, Will, given I'm biased, do you want to ask Leah a question or? Well, so Leah, in general, you've been to this leadership uh, academy what was it called? Um, it is um, through a program called the National Student Leadership Conference, but my specific course was a film and journalism one at UC Berkeley. Wow. 
That is so awesome. Okay. Now you've been to that educational opportunity. You've also, I assume you go to school? Yes, I attend Emma Willard High School in Troy, New York. Awesome. So you've had some experience with teachers. I imagine some of them are better than others. And Matt and I were wondering, we're in the workplace training field, right? So we were wondering what makes a trainer great, but probably some of the same characteristics make teachers great as well. So what, in your mind, makes a teacher great? I've been very lucky to be in environments where the classes I've been in are small. Um, but from my experience, what makes a teacher great is if they know their class well, or if you're in a training area, if they know their audience well. Because I think when you're teaching or you're explaining hard course material, you have to be able to understand how the students best receive that information and what styles of learning best help them. So whether that's more hands-on based or lecture based, and then shaping your curriculum or teaching style to fit their needs. That's cool. I, I agree 100%. Understanding where your learners are coming from and guiding them based on that knowledge and bonding with them so you can inspire them, that seems like, a, like one of the top things. So what do you think are some of the features, Will? I think it's a little bit tricky. So... In some sense, when we think of our great teachers, we think of ones who inspire us, right? Ones who really engage us. Um, but a really good teacher has to do more than that. So I, I've been working on this course and I've broken it down to four things, which I call ELRA, engage, learn, remember, and act. That uh, a good trainer or a good teacher ought to help their audience or their learners to engage to be attentive, to pay attention, to learn the material, but also to be able to remember it and then to act on it. You know, if you learn something, but you don't remember it, that's not gonna be very useful. And if you learn it and remember it, but you don't do anything about it, that's not as useful for you either. To make Elra work, as a trainer, I have to be flexible. So to connect what Leah said and what you just said, if I uh, if I'm not capable of making adjustments in my delivery and in my design spontaneously, concurrently in the moment, then I'm going to fail when something goes awry. Uh, if participants and students are struggling with an activity I'm running, I need to dump the activity and change it in the moment. So being spontaneous, flexible, and, and being aware of how people are doing uh, is essential as well. Absolutely. And I've, I've seen you in action. You're, you're brilliant at that. Paying attention to the audience, making sure. So sometimes you and Leah are saying the same thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I learned a lot from her. So she, uh, I, just to brag a little bit, she took one of Tiagi's magic tricks and she uh, used it as an opening icebreaker to anchor the concept of facilitation flexibility. And she did it in French. Wow. I was impressed. It's on YouTube. You can go on YouTube and watch it. Really? Yeah. We'll put that, we'll have to put that in the episode we'll notes. We'll put it in the episode notes. But another thing for me, another important facet to uh, good training is I have to be very clear what my objective is. So the journey can vary, right? That flexibility we talked about. 
but if I'm not clear the end goal of my the uh, where I'm my destination is, then I'm going to fail. I'm just going to infotain, or I'm just going to uh, go willy nilly wherever the participants lead. I have to be clear where I'm taking them. Yeah, absolutely. Now let me ask you this. Um, yeah. Maybe you got maybe both of you can respond to these. So this is a question that I use uh, to get learner feedback on how well their trainer did. And there's 10, 10 items. Um, and they can choose any three of these, right? So one of the options is ge they generally did a good job in facilitating the learning. Uh, they too often hurried through the content in a superficial manner. They demonstrated deep subject matter knowledge. Uh, they were often unclear or disorganized. They showed high levels of real world experience. They were socially awkward or inappropriate to an extent that it harmed learning. Uh, they motivated me to engage more deeply in the learning than I'd expected. They gave us little or no time to practice the skills we could use. And uh, they were a person I really came to trust. And I wish he, she, or they had performed better in facilitating the learning. I think I've had teachers on both sides of those questions. Um, but the main question that stood out to me was the one about rushing through the material. Because I find a lot in school, especially when you have a lot of material to cover in a short amount of time for a lot of my classes, it's hard to find a balance between spending too much time on the material that we don't get through everything, but also the students or participants don't understand what they're saying because they're going too fast. So I think that's a really important thing to be aware of whether you're a teacher or facilitator and make sure that your pacing as you're teaching or facilitating is good. You know, that is so interesting because it's probably the number one problem with trainers as well. I, you know, I have this problem. I try to teach too much. I have all this good stuff I want to get across and I cram it into my course and it's a really bad idea. <laughs> and it's funny that it stood out for you. You know, one of the things Tiagi has talked about is the notion that certain trainers are different from others who are effective, that there's no constant profile among the great trainers of the world, right? And so you can take a trainer who's very methodical. You can take a trainer who's very detailed, who's slow, uh, who's um, um, very conscientious, who works off of a, a tight agenda, who's highly effective. And contrary, you can have a, a, an improvisational trainer who is spontaneous and gregarious and, and gets people laughing and engaged in a different way uh, and uh, uh, equally effective. And so I think one of the challenges for what makes a trainer great is uh, remembering that sometimes it's not about specific trainer traits, but about outcomes. And are we getting people to that outcome? And are we doing it in a way that engages, gets them to learn, gets them to uh, um, remember, and gets them to uh, uh, act on it? I mean, so, so we've talked about, you know, understanding, having a connection to your learners so that you can design things in a way that works for them. We talked about being flexible. Uh, we talked about not teaching too much stuff. We talked about 
providing realistic practice and opportunities to go deeper, being flexible. What do you think? As a teacher and as a student, because I also know a lot about being a student, um, the teacher has to also sometimes like take control of the room in a more aggressive way, I think. Like, especially as a student, I have had teachers that are so focused on wanting the students to have fun and enjoy them that no work gets done. And I think sometimes the teacher just has to be boring and lecture you because then you actually learn things. There's been a few times where like, he'll do something that seems very planned and then I'll go out, he'll be like, dang it, that all went wrong. And like, I made it up on the spot, like with your Zagarnik effect. Ah, Bluma Zagarnik. Yeah, I find that fun. And I'm always like, why would you do that? Uh, do you, you know Bluma Zagarnik? I do. Yeah. I do. I, I mentioned uh, her in my dissertation, in fact. Well, we're not going to discuss Bluma right now, so you better uh, check out our notes page where we'll put a link on who Bluma is and what she did. Tiagi uh, wrote a book called The Facilitator's Toolkit, and he wrote uh, a set of seven tensions that a, a good facilitator has to balance. And the participants in the room, your objectives, there are all sorts of factors that influence which of these tensions drive you either tighter or looser, depending on, on that context. And one of them is the pace, which we've talked about. One is the level of interaction. Is it too competitive, too cooperative, right? So the notion of driving competition versus cooperation when using activities your tone, playfulness versus seriousness, your implementation, are you too rigid or too loose uh, in your implementation of the design? Um, are you, in terms of sharing your thoughts or getting them to share their thoughts, are you too intrusive or too protective? Focus, too results-oriented or too process-oriented? And then your concern over the individual versus concern for the group. And so I think these, these tensions when managing activities-based training uh, uh, can go into our discussion as well, that a oh. great trainer manages those tensions well. Oh, those are nice. I like that. So we'll put a link to those in our notes as well. So thanks for joining us for that, Leah. Will you stay with us to uh, wrap up the rest of the podcast? Yeah. All right. Will, are you ready for the best and the worst of the week? I am. I'm going to go first. I will start with the worst example. Um, and I actually have two, Matt, if you'll allow me. So yeah, one, yeah, yeah. One, one is like I saw that last episode, my worst was the learning period pyramid on LinkedIn. So that's, that's, I just had to mention that because I saw it again two weeks apart and we talked about it, you know. Okay, so the other one, and this one is really troubling, right? So there was another mass shooting here in the United States and the shooter left a manifesto after he, you know, well, before he went to kill 20 plus people. Um, and he said in his manifesto that he wanted to stop the immigrant invasion. Now he's, so he's a white racist supremacist. And, you know, obviously he wasn't born that way. He was born pure and didn't have these evil thoughts in his head, but then over time, somehow he learned the wrong things. 
And then it wasn't just about the learning, and he probably had a lot of influences on those. It was also about the triggering. You know, he went over some threshold, and he went out and bought a gun or got a gun, and then he went and shot people. So to me, there's like a lot of sources that ha happened to his learning and to his sort of triggering. You know, there's, there's things like institutions, like our media institutions, like Fox News, from our president himself, from internet hate groups, from friends and family. So this was my worst learning thing of the week. Terrible. My best. I saw an article uh, by Karen, and I'm not sure how to say her last name. It's H-A-O, uh, Karen Ho, uh, MIT, in MIT Technology Review. And she um, talked about how China is trying to lead the world in using artificial intelligence in education. And I'm a little bit of a skeptic that this is going to be good for everything, but uh, they have put a lot into this. They're spending a lot of money doing a lot of research on this. So um, it could be that the rest of the world gets left behind. Maybe there'll be some lessons learned out of that. It's going to be very interesting. But a couple of things uh, I thought were important. They talked about, you know, diagnosing the learners, figuring out what they knew, what they didn't know. Uh, they talked about using that over time. But they also said, now, once you know what their knowledge points are or what they need to know, and I'm going to quote here so I don't get it wrong, they are paired, the learners are then paired with video lectures, notes, worked examples, and practice problems. So they said they're getting benefits, but is it the AI or is it things that we know that work, like worked examples and practice problems? So really interesting article, got me thinking, uh, and AI is here we're going to have to think about what it means to us. So that was my best. Great. I'm going to start with my best. My best was, keep in mind this is on a weekly basis for us or a bi-weekly basis. So my best this week was a personal thing. And um, I found out, uh, because they told me, that three participants that were in a year-long program with me last year were promoted to partners in their firms and they attribute it to the program wow and, and uh, as do their colleagues which was very nice to find out and very nice to to hear the caveat to that is i don't agree i believe they came in with the potential the capabilities the knowledge and that there were many many factors that made them ready to, to step into a, an executive leadership role. Um, but to have them attribute that uh, was, was really good for my ego uh, and also nice validation that at least people viewed the program we built and execute. And I say we because it wasn't just me. Uh, uh, was well received. So that, that was my good. And I know that was more of a personal thing, but That's okay. I'm going to take it. The bad was nowhere near as bad as yours. Um, but relating to our conversation last week with Tiagi about what do we call ourselves, I've been a little more sensitive lately over the last week or so about um, role definition. And I found that several of our colleagues have been struggling with subject matter experts. And this is something I've heard 
over and over again for years that subject matter experts dictate how training should be designed. They dictate how much time should be spent. And I find this to be an utter travesty. To me, the subject matter expert works for the designer slash trainer. The subject matter expert is, to reference our terminology earlier, a tool. And yes, I do refer to that as a double entendre. <laughs> so the subject matter expert needs to be pointed at and talk once uh, addressed and then shut up. Subject matter experts have absolutely no place doing instructional design or delivery unless they are the instructional designer and the deliverer as well. Which brings me to the next piece. This is causing me to really reflect greatly on the notion that we have individualized people playing these individualized roles in designing, delivering, and building courseware almost by committee. As we've discussed in our previous show, we are all three of these things often. We are designers, we are evaluators, we're deliverers, we're subject matter experts. Very, very rarely are we one and only one of these things. And the more we keep separating these roles, the more I keep thinking, by the way, that's thunder. We're having a very bad thunderstorm right now. So if you hear it in the background, that's what's happening. Uh, so very rarely do we hear or see individuals ha having the capacity to uh, build training on their own or, or to deliver it on their own. And I think this is a mistake. That was my bad. That was my rant. So... <laughs> Good. Leah, best and worst. Okay. Should I start with my worst? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Um, so my worst happened this week. So it's summertime, and I've been kind of bored. So I was like, what should I do? So I decided to take one of those personality tests. And She's not my daughter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of those, and I like read the description of the test, and it was talking about how this test is proven to be very accurate and everyone has a dominating personality trait. But if we happen to pick your dominating personality trait wrong, that's because no one has a dominating personality trait and this test is wrong. And then I took the test and it was just a lot of false information that I thought sounded very stupid. So that was probably like my worst learning thing because I was like, why do people believe this? It's not correct. Um, so yeah. And then, so let me, let me clarify that. Yeah. So what you're saying is you didn't choose to take this. This was a part of your program, right? Yes. Oh, but you didn't want to imply that that was a part of your yeah. program. Got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Then that's on me. <laughs> but the second thing to clarify here is the assessment they gave you said, this is very accurate. Mm -hmm. This is what what you see is what you get. But if you don't agree with it, it's okay. It's wrong. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> Talk about reconciling. Wow. Reconciling. I mean, I, I'm going to stay up all night thinking about that. <laughs> Do you know the name of it? What um, was the name of it? I don't know the name of it, but it was um, you had four personalities and you were either a lion, a peacock, a koala, or an owl. And I got that I was a lion or a peacock. 
like, or, I mean, not a peacock, a koala. I was a lion or a koala. I was tied. And I was like, these are the exact opposite. This can't be correct. The future leaders of our world. Oh, boy. The program is a really great program, besides from that one day. So it's a really good program. <laughs> yeah. Leah is now on tape saying that. <laughs> That's great. Leah, hey, thank you so much. There's scholarships involved here. We don't want to burn <laughs> any bridges. Okay, Leah, what was the best? Um, and the best also happened at this program. We did um, a, sim a newsroom simulation where we weren't really given any time to prep for it. We we're, were told like 30 minutes before, pick your roles. And then we had four hours to interview people, go to conference briefings and press conferences and be keeping up and responding to social media posts about what was going on. Um, and a lot of it was deciphering what information was true and what information was biased. Um, and I think it was a great learning opportunity for me at least because it was very much, I'm going to throw you into this situation and you're going to get a taste of what it's like and you're going to have to figure it out as you go along because that's how a lot of the stuff outside of a school setting works and you don't have five days to study for it beforehand. So it was nice to sort of practice learning and improving and growing in the moment because you don't have a choice. Wow. That's great. And that was our best and worst of the week. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. So, Will, that's our fourth episode. We've done four of these. This is awesome. Truth and Learning, episode number four. Uh, hey, what should we call this episode? Um... Leo goes to California. I will do that. Uh, a variation of that. Then people will say, who the hell is Leah? <laughs> How much do you want to bet we get notes and emails saying, replace one of us with Leah? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Till next time. Bye.